The Feed Bandit Podcast, Episode 10, Landscape Management for Wildlife and Hunting. Howdy and welcome to the Feed Bandit Podcast, where we have fun talking all things hunting and in the process do our best to support small and family-owned businesses in the hunting space. Here are your hosts and resident bandits, Jimmy Byrne and Richard Kinchlow. Hey everybody, welcome back and thanks so much for joining us on the Feed Bandit Podcast. Uh, Jimmy and Richard here, uh, how are you doing sir? Outstanding, sir. It's it's uh, it's raining, so that, that's a good thing. Very excited. Well, it's I think it's about to be raining forty days and forty nights here. I hope it don't uh, all flood and wash away. But uh... yeah, I ain't I ain't seen a big boat come by, so I'm a little <laughs> concerned. <laughs> I may have missed the trip. Right. Uh, but you know, uh, we like to kind of if we went hunting, we like to recap what happened. I guess the weekend before. Uh, if, it, right. if people listen to episode nine. You know, we re- recorded that actually down at uh, Rancho Bandito in the, in the middle of our hunt. Uh, so, well, I mean, let's see what happened. Uh, it rained. It rained a lot. <laughs> uh, pretty yep. much the entire weekend. It yep. Like. No, it, it's actually been raining, I think, for about uh, about two and a half weeks so far. Yes, that's uh, pretty crazy. But that didn't stop us from harvesting some animals. Absolutely. Yeah, we, um, Jimmy, Jimmy got a nice, uh, black buck antelope doe, uh, which is, uh, which is outstanding. Uh, we've got quite a few of those running around and, uh, they, like most exotics, uh, the black buck antelope do not have any breeding season. So, um, you know, they basically are pregnant year round. With that being the case, they're dropping fawns all the time. So we need to get after and, and, and get at them. And it, it's kind of funny, the antelope, you know, when you're out driving around, they're herd animals, you know, so they don't hang out in the bush, per se. They're out, out there on the plains. When you're driving around, you can, I mean, I feel like we go feed them sometimes, but by the second you pull a gun out, they are all over the place. So it was right. good to get one. Yeah, for sure. Uh, looking forward to eating that meat. Um, Definitely. And then, of course, uh, just a, a management, I don't know if you call it, I guess, a spike of management buck. You know, on the property. But, yeah, uh, technically, technically. Yeah. Some people will call it a cull, uh, yeah. but I think it's becoming more of a management decision now. You know, we're really not, and we'll talk about spikes as we get down the road, but, you know, back in the day when, when I was growing up, spikes were definitely considered a cull, an inferior deer. They were basically saying that the white-tailed deer who has spikes as a, as a youngster will grow up and, and have nothing but spikes. And, and, uh, I have yet to see that. I've, I've seen one four and a half year old deer that I killed, which he's absolutely beautiful, um, that, that had spikes. So I consider it more of a management thing, taking a mouth out more than the bad genetics. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, either way, it was fun. Uh, a little muddy, but, uh, it was a good time to clean some deer or well, clean some animals that always good to, get that muscle memory back after a year off absolutely uh, I, I, after cleaning those i was uh how, kind of sore using muscles i haven't used in a year that's pretty pretty <laughs> pathetic but it's true well but and I'll, I'll tell you and we, we can talk about it more later but that's why you have good tools you know a good sharp knife will cut through all that and uh keeping the knife good and sharp is uh is definitely a plus so oh my god night and day between yep. that and, oh, yep. so absolutely. Fr- beginning of the year is so nice Oh yeah, no, there's no doubt. And then, and once you get to num- pig number uh, ninety-seven, it, it's miserable. Right. You, and that's when you let the new guy, new guy, clean them. Right, right. 
All right. Well, uh, hopefully we're planning on going back this weekend, so hopefully we have a good uh, recap for y'all next week uh, again. Uh, but today we're very excited uh, for the podcast because uh, we're going to learn a lot talking to our special guest. Uh, we're honored to have on the show uh, Daniel Cunningham. Thank you for joining us this evening, Dan. Uh, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are y'all doing? Uh, awesome. Awesome. Excited to have you here. Uh, yeah. Glad- <laughs> Absolutely. Excited yeah. to have you, sir. I'm excited to be here for sure, no doubt. Glad we're finally able to connect. Uh, you know, what the people don't see from behind the scenes is we've had some technical difficulties prior to this. <laughs> we're able to, f- able to finally figure them out. Uh, I just want to say, get this on record, let me just say Microsoft needs to get its you-know-what out of its you-know-where, but I guess that's neither here nor there. But let me uh, let me just give a quick bio uh, for the listeners before we dive in. So uh, Daniel is a horticulturalist with uh, Texas A&M AgriLife's Water University program, where he provides professionals and the public with the most current research-based information on resource-efficient and water-conserving landscape management. Uh, focused on a holistic approach, Daniel specializes in native plants, edible landscaping, rainwater harvesting, and utilizing landscapes as habitat for beneficial wildlife. All cool stuff. So we're, we're really looking forward to speaking with him today uh, about uh, a lot of general things, but, uh, you know, landscape management for wildlife and hunting, because that's kind of really impacts everything we do. So, uh, how about we just jump right into it? And uh, hey, Dan, let's uh, let's hear your what I like to call your origin story, if you will, like uh, where who you are, where you came from, why you got into this, uh, all that type of stuff. Uh, take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that that sounds good. I know uh, that that introduction's a mouthful. I, I appreciate it. My or as my wife says when she introduces me at parties. You know, sometimes people don't know horticulturists. They don't know what the word means. And <laughs> it's really just plants and stuff. So, um, and, and plants is something I've been into, you know, pretty much my whole life. Um, since I can remember, I think, you know, maybe, uh, third, fourth grade, there was a woman, um, that, that lived a couple houses down from us and she didn't have a fence in her backyard and, uh, was just growing all different types of, of fruits and vegetables there. And, and I remember, being fascinated with the, with the food that she was growing and uh, kind of pun intended planted the seed for who I would become as an adult. You know, she would take some of that food inside and, and cook it for me. And then um, kind of on the, on the, uh, the native plant side, um, I was really kind of blessed to uh, get to know a guy named Benny Simpson, uh, one of the founders of the native plant society of Texas uh, when I was a wee below in boy scouts. And, uh, just remember him talking about um, not only native plants and their importance for our urban ecosystems as well as our rural ecosystems, but the benefit that they have uh, with with uh, different insects and, and animals. And um, you know, really, kind of that's that's something I had always been interested in, but I didn't really know that you could do that for a job. Uh, in fact, you know, when I got to know y- y'all two, that, that was kind of the, the, the last thing on my mind going to, to Texas Tech. I, I studied business marketing and economics and kind of bounced around and changed majors. Um, but then, uh, ended up in, in horticulture and kind of, you know, hit the ground running. And, uh, it's really been, um, real more than a passion. I think is an, an obsession. I want to know everything there is about plants, uh, 
whether that's, you know, like I said, in the landscape or, or out on wildlands as well. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, we're lucky to have you as a, as a friend and a, uh, knowledge base for all that stuff. Uh, oh yeah, there's, fascinating. there's no doubt. There's no doubt. <laughs> Anytime somebody, any of our, any of our group of friends, even thinks about putting something on the ground, why? Why call Dan? Gotta get text Dan. But yeah, <laughs> ask him. Let him know. You know. And, and that it, Jimmy's right. That is a huge, huge resource. That's uh, that's nice to have. Right. I, I appreciate it. And and likewise with everything hunting or, or technical or finance I, I it's it's good to have a a good friend base to uh, to pull from for sure absolutely uh what can you tell us more other than what i read in the bio kind of about what you know texas a&m agrilife's uh, water university program is yeah so um pretty much every state in the union has um kind of a land grant university system and so, uh, you know, whatever that, that university is, uh, they have, uh, an, uh, extension program as part of that. And really, extension's role is just education and outreach. So a lot of times, uh, that's centered around the agriculture community. Uh, so if that's, you know, growing different crops, um, but also, uh, there's a lot of resources there in, in terms of, uh, you know, I guess the term would be uh, land resource management, um, natural resource management. And uh, then there's also uh, kind of horticulture, so more horticulture, agriculture, uh, kind of related um, growing vegetables and fruits and that type of stuff as well. But, yeah, each state has them, and, and ours is through – uh, even though my degrees are from Texas Tech, I'm a, I'm an Aggie. Uh, anytime payday comes around, <laughs> uh, so, so Texas A&M. Uh, well, hopefully, payday's never on a Saturday. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, okay. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we don't have to worry about that too much anymore. But yeah, well, so uh, yeah. you know, Texas A&M uh, is uh, the has a part. It, Texas A&M AgriLife is the land grant program that we have. It's part of the Texas A&M University system, and uh, there's two parts of that. So there's research, who I work for, so they're focused um, trying to come up with the most current research-based information um, from a, a variety of topics, anything having to do with, with science or agriculture. And then there's the extension part of that. There's sister agencies, and extension is actually focused more on the education and outreach, so bringing that most current research-based information uh, to the public, and uh, they do that through a variety of different programs all over the state of Texas, but if you're listening in Oklahoma, Louisiana, you know, really anywhere in the union, you have an extension office uh, nearby with some great resources there as well. Is the extension office uh, typically out of just one university? Did you say that? I was, is it like A&M only in Texas? Y yes, that's that's right. So um, it is, uh, you know, in the state of Texas, it's Texas A&M. In Oklahoma, it's Oklahoma State. Louisiana, it's LSU. And um, that's that land-grant university system was actually something uh, that was put into effect by Abraham Lincoln. Uh, so federal funds uh, set aside to do that. So pretty huh. interesting. Okay. Uh, the water university part, does that mean that you're kind of, your research is more focused on water and water conservation and how that relates to plants and stuff? Or, you, or is that just 
you still research research primarily just kind of whatever you want, or how, how does that work? Yeah, so um, kind of interestingly enough, here in the DFW area, really this used to be a rural area back in the day. Uh, the Research and Extension Center over off of Coit Road at one time, uh, they said the research that was being done there not only affected every Texan, but every American with research on corn and wheat and, and also different grazing systems. Um, and then as kind of urban sprawl continued to grow around the Metroplex, uh, the major focus started being around uh, urban issues and finding solutions to those urban problems. And uh, water is one of those. You know, we live in not only one of the fastest growing areas in in the state of Texas, but also the country with estimated three to 400 people a day moving to kind of the broader North Texas area. And um, we have limited water resources. So we get most of our water here um, from surface water. And uh, we have to do uh, a better job of, of conserving that water, not only for our current population, um, but also just being better stewards uh, for generations to come. And so uh, the Urban Water Program, uh, which is, is coined Water University, is really focused on that. So um, not just North Texas, we drive all, all across the state of Texas. Um, but teaching people how they can conserve water, uh, but also how they can protect water on our watershed. So keeping that water uh, clean, not only on our lakes, but also our creeks and our rivers. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of what we do. And uh, we do that with um, 20 plus horticulture based classes uh, for homeowners. So teach them how they can be uh, more efficient with their natural resources. And then we also do some professional trainings as well. Uh, rainwater harvesting is one of those, efficient irrigation, um, and then a whole uh, wealth of information on growing food, growing native plants, and that type of stuff. Awesome. Well, I guess, that you know, aside from oxygen, I guess water is the uh, most important thing we need. So yeah, I guess it, you know, that'll keep you in business for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, job security, for sure. Yeah, my, my undergraduate degree is in environmental horticulture and just looking at, you know, the growing population and figuring out we need to do a little bit j better job. I actually got a minor in natural resource management, and then my master's got to look more into grazing systems um, in terms of cattle, but also wildlife management. And so... You know, we try and put all that together and, and just realize that everything's connected. Right. Well, I mean, uh, along, since we're on the topic of water, uh, yeah, just one thing that I've kind of always thought or started thinking lately, uh, you know, driving around the area, you see all these beautiful green lawns and whatnot. And since, you know, knowing you and the ideas that you've talked about in the past and everything about uh, native plants, you know, having a... Uh, what people call a Texas scape, right? Where uh, you plant native plants, and you know you kind of rely on the uh, the climate, I guess, to take care of your your lawn more or less. And correct me if I'm, you know, not doing a good job explaining it, but uh, it just amazes me that you can do that and have a beautiful lawn, you know, if you do it right. But we sure, still so have these ugly green grass lawns everywhere. <laughs> so, so kind of the the running joke is, um, you know. And in terms of zero scapes or um, sometimes people think of drought tolerant plants or native and adapted plants, 
as just yucca and cacti and uh, landscapes uh, with with rocks all throughout, and really that's the main focus. And uh, yeah, we joked that you got to have a cow skull. Uh, in this case, a deer skull or antelope skull in the landscape. Um, but that's not true. You know, you, Richard and, and you were talking about uh, rain kind of opening it up, and we've had record rainfall uh, for September, and, and certainly we do have drought. Drought is kind of the norm here in Texas. Um, but in our area, we get about 36, 38 inches of rain um, on average. Now, some years we only see 18, and other years we can see uh, quite a bit more than that. Um, but there are, are a lot of native plants that really thrive in, in that kind of rainfall regime. Uh, we're also looking not only for plants that are adapted to our rainfall patterns, but our soil type. And that's something key, uh, whether whether you're looking at, at growing plants in your landscape or, or on your ranch or ranchette. Um, there are a lot of different soil types, clays and loams and, and, and sands and, and different combinations of those. But certain plants just like to thrive in, in certain types of soils. And then we also want plants that are adapted to our extreme heat. So uh, pretty much anywhere down here in Texas, you know, we're going to see multiple 100 plus degree days. And uh, we want plants that are Texas tough that can can thrive through those seasons. Right. Yeah, I told my wife uh if the next house we go into, if I gotta, if I gotta really take care of the lawn, I said, I'm either going to, <laughs> you know, put down rocks in the entire front yard, or I'm gonna do your zeroscape <laughs> idea. Call, and I'm gonna have you Daniel. come over and help me. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say. Well, so, it, it, it's funny you say that because talk, talking about calling Daniel, when we moved into our house uh, here in in the NDFW, we. Um, we had a whole bunch of, uh, you know, their, their established, uh, plants like Japanese boxwood, oleander. Uh, we had a lot of rose bushes and things of that nature. And I remember I got with Daniel. This has been a hundred years ago now, it feels like. And we basically yanked it all out. Uh, and we put in some, uh, some salvia. We put in, um, a flame anthocanthus, which is a, a great butterfly, uh, or excuse me, hummingbird attracting bush. Uh, and then we put in, I planted a, 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 a butterfly bush for my daughter, which the monarchs were just all over, by the way. And we have absolutely gotten the most enjoyment out of it because, first of all, all I got to do is trim it back, okay? It comes back every year. It's had the crap kicked out of it by tons of rain, miserable heat, miserable cold, and it comes back every single year, and I don't have to hassle with it. And it provides for our native Texas critters, such as the monarchs, the hummingbirds, things of that nature. So I, uh, I owe, I owe my my love of, of native Texas plants and landscaping and my knowledge uh, specifically to uh, Daniel for sure. That's that's great to hear, and that's that's a great point. That the added value it has uh, to wildlife. I mean, a lot of landscapes are really just for our enjoyment, um, but to to see. The birds, the butterflies, uh, all the different beneficial pollinators and bees. Um, it really just adds kind of a third or fourth dimension to your landscape that, you know, to doing it with kids is just fantastic to see their faces light up for sure. But man, just, just to make us feel like kids again too. And, and, uh, I, I don't feel like less of a man to say, you know, when I see just this past weekend the monarchs in the landscape, I get excited and, and yep. really giddy. Um, and the role that they play and learning more about, um, you know, wildlife uh, that's native to our area is really fascinating. 
Yeah, and that's that's actually a good point. That one of the things that we're we're going to do an, an extensive blog on, and a podcast on is getting children involved, getting in children involved with wildlife, and and not just at your land or at your lease or or at your ranch or your farm or whatever, but we're getting them involved here. You know, giving them a stake in the game and and teaching them things like that. I mean, my God, the, the, these children. They're 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 playing with their electronics and all that, but I guarantee you none of them know how to plant an acorn. You know, none of them know how to plant a, a plant and and see the fruits of that labor. Uh, so that's something we'll talk at, talk about more. But but he's exactly right. Get them involved, no doubt. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, just a side question. Uh, maybe you can give a quick tip here. Uh, how, what are good plants, or I don't know, whatever it might be to help uh, prevent a lot of mosquitoes in your, on your property, you know, other than pouring out standing water and stuff like that. But is there any kind of any plants that might might help with that? Yeah. So uh, we actually, you know, one of my side gigs, uh, I have a, a monthly article now, a bi-monthly for the Dallas Morning News. And uh, so if you want to go, you know, read more into that, you can find that article at dallasnews.com. But just um, off the top of my head, um, so there, there definitely are plants that have uh, botanical oils and chemicals in them that uh, repel insects. Uh, one of those native that I was uh, talking about earlier today is American beautyberry. Um, it's a, a plant that grows in the shade, has berries, and has uh, a chemical structure that uh, actively repels mosquitoes. Um, but like a lot of our plants, you know, lavender and, and, um, lemongrass and rosemary, uh, lantana is one of those. Um, any of those, if you want to get those oils out, you actually have to crush the leaf of the plant or you have to burn that plant in, in order to really make an impact. So uh, a lot of times, you know, people plant these scented geraniums. They call them citronella, which isn't a true citronella. It's just kind of a nickname or mosquito plant. Um, just putting that in your landscape doesn't really do anything to deter mosquitoes. Really, the best way to deter mosquitoes is to, like you said, remove that standing water. Um, but, you know, with some of the edible herbs, if I'm going to go, you know, m- maybe today since we've had all this rain and I wanted to make some burgers, um, if I got the grill already going or the smoker going and there's some mosquitoes about, if I threw a little bit of rosemary on there, then it could also, because it, it's burning and smoking, could release uh, some of, of those uh, volatile oils as well. Oh, that's interesting. It's awesome. <laughs> that's a good tip right there. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, if you were going to the to the uh, the deer stand or, or you were out maybe trying to, to find some turkeys, and you see American Beautyberry or Lantana, both native plants, you crush it and rub it on yourself if you have, uh, you know, forgot the mosquito spray. And, you know, will it control every single mosquito? Probably not, but it's going to do a, a lot better than just walking through their bare skin. Oh, yeah, that's better than nothing. I mean, those mosquitoes, they eat me alive. I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous. So I'm, <laughs> next time, definitely, I'm uh, turkey hunting. I'm going to be looking for that. No question. Um, let's go back to water real quick. Uh, something about you know this all this rain we're having getting right now. You know, it's I'm sure there are a lot of people you know kicking themselves for maybe being lazy and not doing something back when it was kind of a drought to uh, set up some sort of rain catchment or something like that to uh, take advantage of what's you know what's falling out of the sky right now. 
uh, you know, what's that old saying? You know, the time to re- fix your roof is when it's sun when it's sunny, not when it's raining, right? Sure. Uh, and one of my mentors, a guy named Brad Lancaster out of Tucson, always says, "In times of rain, plan for drought. In times of drought, plan for rain." And that's exactly you know what you want to do: slow sink and spread the water and capture it in in tanks and cisterns and and then you'll have that to use uh for the the drier times well let's talk about that uh so uh can you give us some ideas of the best ways to do that to capture that rain and then really store it and keep it so that it didn't go you know get all nasty and then you know all that type of stuff like what kind of tips can you can you throw out about that yeah, sure. So, you know, rainwater harvesting is something that's uh, been happening in Texas for uh, a really long time. You know, our early pioneers went into that, but it's it's a practice that um, has has been uh, really prominent all over the world for for thousands of years. And uh, because we are blessed with with great water systems, um, a lot of times people just turn on the faucet and they expect water. Uh, to come out, but in, in drought, that may or may not be the case. If you have a larger property and you're on a well or you're pulling water from a pond, uh, definitely I think people have more of a respect for water. Um, the first thing in terms of rainwater harvesting is you, you need to kind of look at what your catchment area is. And the catchment area, really for the most part, uh, first thing we would look at is roofs. So you know, if you have asphalt shingles, metal roof, even, you know, uh, wood roofs, you can harvest rainwater off of that roof. Um, could be a barn, could be a house, could be a shed. And uh, through Texas A&M, we do have some calculators uh, that will help you look at uh, in terms of the square footage of your roof or your catchment area. And then on average, how much rainfall you get. So I said, you know, here in DFW, we get about, you know, 32, 34 inches uh, of rainfall. And then um, we need to look at also is when that water is kind of spaced out. If we're getting the majority of our water in the spring and in the fall, maybe a little bit less in the summer, we need to have a cistern or a tank that's large enough in order to hold those spring rains and last us throughout the summer until our, our tanks start filling up again and we start getting water in the fall. So uh, the distribution of that water is also key. Um, and, and then the other kind of uh, realist approach is you uh, rainwater tanks are kind of expensive. So um, just the regular poly tanks, the plastic tanks, um, you know, we can get one to two dollars a gallon, depending on how big. Of course, the bigger cistern you get, the cheaper that's going to be. And then if you're looking at, at metal tanks, um, tanks that are that are uh, metal on the outside with bladder or straight, you know, stainless steel, you know, we could be looking up, you know, three, four, five, six, even seven dollars a gallon. So they can they can get on up there, but. Um, you can use that rainwater for, for any kind of, uh, you know, resource that you would use water, whether that's in the landscape, perhaps it's uh, providing water for wildlife, um, uh, which we have some resources through AgriLife as well, um, different uh, setups where you're kind of making your own catchment area. Maybe it's a smaller barrel to provide uh, water in a certain area. Maybe it's, it could be cattle, but it also could be deer or you know, turkey, quail, what have you. Awesome. Now, how do you, uh, like, keep that water from, you know, getting nasty? (laughs) 
You know what I mean? Like, uh, if, if you, you want to keep it several months, right? So, sure. Okay. So, one of the things that we do is you, you just got to think about that the water that is coming out of your barrel is only going to be as clean as the water going into your barrel or your tank. Uh, so you need to look at your gutters. If you have trees around, make sure that those gutters are, are clean and free of debris. Not only just you don't want all those leaves in your tank, uh, but also you wouldn't want your, your gutters to breed mosquitoes. Um, and, and then uh, there, there are a couple different ways that we do that. So uh, one of those is called the first flush. And so, and you can kind of just Google that term, but first flush is basically it is a section of pipe that is going to catch um, the first few millimeters of rainwater, raindrops that hit your roof. So maybe a bird, uh, you know, took a, took took uh, some relief on your roof. Maybe <laughs> you know, it's the squirrels do what they do, pun intended. Right. Um, and you don't want that uh, certainly in your in your tank. And so it's basically just flushing that leaf debris, perhaps the wildlife poo into. Uh, a separate little pipe, and then all the clean water that's running now after that first little bit of rain uh, goes into your cistern. We also typically uh, like to put a basket or a strainer on there as well, um, so that will catch any uh, debris that happens to make it past those those first two. Um, and then uh, when we're getting the water out of the tank, uh, there are different um mechanisms. One of those that we recommend is called a floating inlet. Um, and basically what that does is it when you're uh when you open the faucet and you're trying to use that water, it's taking the water from the middle of the tank. So sometimes debris floats to the surface, sometimes debris settles at the bottom. But typically if we take from the middle of that column, that's where our cleanest water is. Um, and then, you know, we really only want to use that water from that stage. It's going to look clean. It's going to smell great. It doesn't have an expiration date. Um, but we just want to use that around plants, perhaps for our pets and our wildlife. We don't, as humans, want to consume it. It's clean, but it's not that clean. If we do want to clean it to flush the toilets or, or do uh, uh, drinking water like, like y'all are doing at, at uh, Rancho Bandito, um, it's better to hook that up to filtration um, in order to, to clean that water even further. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, we've got um, the Rancho Bandito, the place that we hunt, we, we've got that, that system in place with the filters. And then also we have uh, the, the UV light. Um, the UV light, I'm hearing, is, is really kind of the, the, the creme de creme of micro, you know, killing all the microorganisms and stuff like that that'll, you know, that'll, that'll have you uh, seeing cross-eyed pretty quick. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. And, you know, the older systems used to use chlorine, and um, chlorine's, you know, great for, for some instances, but... Uh, really, uh, benefit for our plants certainly is is to to have that chlorine not be put in there in the first place, and that's where UV uh, filtration works so well. Very interesting. All right. So <clears throat> now that we've you know collected all this water and we're ready to maybe use it for wildlife and uh, our and plants and whatnot, uh, why don't we start talking about plants for wildlife? You know, what What could we plant and then use this water we've collected to help grow that plant, you know, specifically, you know, to have some browse or food or whatnot for wildlife to eat? 
like it. Uh, maybe we talk about. I know it's a pretty broad question, I'm sure, because it depends on the wildlife, right? But uh, I don't know. Start with uh, like white-tailed deer as an example. You know, uh, or, we're, now we're in Texas, obviously, so I guess it'd probably depend on where you are as well, because some things don't grow everywhere. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. Just uh, can you take a shot at that and just give some ideas on that? Sure. So, you know, like any management practice, uh, you know, you want to focus on what you're actually trying to manage. And, and for white deer, white-tailed deer, deer who are, are browsers and, you know, certainly if you have cattle, those are grazers and you may have some intermediate feeders there as well. Um, but but different types of, of forbs um, you, you'd want to have. And, uh, of course, we like natives first uh, strictly because – Typically, natives are going to be better adapted to not only the rainfall, but also the hot temperatures, the soil, uh, the different pests and diseases that we may see. Um, and, you know, specifically, there's a lot of different native uh, seed companies that have mixes uh, that are really regionally adapted, uh, that do have uh, higher numbers of forbs and, and wildflowers. Um, a lot of times also, uh, typically if you're trying to restore an ecosystem like our blackland prairie, uh, where there's a lot of diverse native plants, uh, you want to incorporate some of our native range grasses as well. Most of those are clumping grasses. So it could be, uh, you know, smaller grasses like, like our buffalo grass, but also curly mesquite and, and blue grandma and, and getting into some of our little blue stems and those, uh, help our forbs grow, uh, but because they're um, clumping grasses, they kind of help uh, create these little pockets where our, our forbs can grow. Um, and, and there, there are quite a few different uh, forbs that we have, uh, you know, specifically that that, that uh, whitetail would like. Um, you know, partridge pea is, is one of those. Um, uh, the, and, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of others. I'm I'm kind of blanking right now. Um, but uh, the good thing is you, depending on where you are, whether it's in the state of Texas or it's perhaps in a different state, is your extension office is going to have a, a resource of uh, specific plants to your area for the specific game that you want to provide uh, food for. And I would just kind of look at those lists, um, but also look at the season. So you may be trying to plant something uh, a little bit different in the spring than you would the fall. A lot of times, uh, fall is better time to plant our forbs. Spring and the summer, you can get by with planting some of those those native grasses. Okay, yeah. So that's a that's that's good uh, advice there. Reach out to your extension. I mean, there there you go. That's you explained all that at the beginning, and there's a perfect uh, use for it, right? Um, so let me ask you. You know, I reach out, I get an idea of what, what uh, seeds to plant and whatnot, and I, I find a company that makes a good mix, say, of these seeds, and I get a bag. Uh, can I just go out and just throw them out, or do I need to prepare the land first, or what's the best way to get those things to, to, to grow for me, or at least give them the highest percentage of actually growing for me? Yeah, well, one of the first things you want to look at is kind of what you have there first. So, okay. um, you know, you can uh, certainly um, you reach out to me uh, on social media at TX Plant Guy if you need help identifying something. Work with your uh, um, local biologist through Texas Parks and Wildlife or 
or your local uh, game and fishery and game uh, people. Um, but identify what you have, and you may have actually some really good stuff uh, there. And so in that case, you may not want to do a lot of soil dis- disturbance. Um, typically, when we start to till and, and disturb the soil, um, while that can kind of give us a clean slate, and it may be necessary if we had some of those invasive plants uh, that didn't have a lot of wildlife value or grazing value, um, disturbing the soil is going to release some nitrogen. It's also going to break up the soil structure and those beneficial microorganisms we want in the soil. We don't want to disturb them too much. So um, kind of just doing an inventory of what you have. You maybe you may have some good stuff. You may have some stuff that's less desirable. And then uh, decide, uh, you know, do you want to do kind of, a mild till? Do you want to do a little bit deeper till? Do you just want to go in there with a, a seed drill um, and put that seed out there? Um, but but really, I, I guess the, the best advice is to, um, you know, do some homework before you do that and then uh, to, to make sure that you're not doing more damage than good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just so take inventory, take stock of what's there. And then you got to customize your plan based on basically what's there. Yeah, and, and if it was an area that was overgrazed, whether that's you know from from wildtail deer or cattle or, or whoever owned your property before, may have decades of of overgrazing. Uh, you may have some plants that we call increasers. These plants that don't have a lot of forage value, um, and so you may try and do a better job of of uh, managing your population. So. Um, your animals aren't eating the ice cream plants or typically, you know, that's what happens is, is animals will eat the ones that they think are most delicious first. And so then the less desirables, uh, kind of take a foothold. Um, but then you could go in there and just broadcast seed. It's, it's always better though when you're planting seed to do it before a rainfall event. Especially if, you know, irrigation is probably, if you're doing something like a food plot, yes, you know, you may have uh, a small area access to irrigation. But if you're trying to do acres, um, you're probably depending on rainfall for that seed to come up. And so to kind of time it when uh, you do have a rainfall event, uh, typically that's going to be in the spring and the fall here in our area. Okay. Danny, I got I got uh, one thing for you. You know, again, going back to habitat restoration, uh, talking about getting the kids involved uh, when it, when it comes to this sort of thing. Um, and one of the things that that literally every hunter in every state who who's got a place can potentially do is is planting acorns. Uh, that's something that that I grew up doing. Uh, we had a hunting lease in, in Throckmorton, Texas. Uh, where they didn't have any acorn, they didn't have any oak trees, and I remember uh, uh, literally filling up two or three swimming pools, little baby baby pools full of them in the fall of my little uh, my little huffy bike, and then uh, taking them out there to Throckmorton, they just absolutely loved them, which is kind of funny because they never had exposure to them, but they ate them anyway. But uh, you know, one of the things we, we do now with with our girls is when we go on rides in the neighborhood. Uh, we will look for, um, unfortunately, the red oaks, and you can maybe talk to that too. Red oak, uh, live oak, and of course, I- I'm dying to find the chinkapin and the bur oak. Uh, but we take those those out there, and we and we just randomly plant them. Um, the other thing that we do is, and it, it's it's it kind of got to thinking about is that you know I'll go put them under a deer feeder, okay, and then when the squirrels come, inevitably they're going to bury some of them. 
what what are your thoughts on on that? Is that a is that a good way of of doing it? You know, help letting nature help you. Oh, I I think that's that's fantastic. Um, not only just for um, the value, the benefit that it has to the environment, but also uh, just getting the kids involved and doing activity that's fun. Uh, certainly, it's going to take an acorn a long time to grow. Um, and so if you wanted something a little bit quicker, you could do some, some transplanting of the, of the seeds, but, or the, or trees, more mature trees. Um, but that's really not practical, both because of the cost and then also transplanting trees. Um, sometimes the taproot of those trees is a little truncated if it's been in the container too long. Uh, then you're more concerned with irrigation. So really acorns is just more of a numbers game, but yeah, a lot of people can plant a lot of acorns and uh and then um as those acorns begin to germinate the taproot uh can kind of dig down in there it can spread its roots and then uh you know you may not have a high percentage turn into a mature trees you know 10 20 years later uh, but certainly some of them will and and I think uh, that technique has been used all over the world for reforestation and and I would say uh, keep up the good work and and I'd actually like to get in on some of that action myself. <laughs> well, God, I'm glad you I'm glad you said that because the they're falling, and you know, you're anytime you're you're more than you're you're more than welcome to come down. Uh, uh, but but in all, in all seriousness, it is it is an absolute ball, you know, to be able to take the acorns from here in Dallas and and uh, and go plant them at, at Bandito is uh, is a whole lot of fun. Um, Danny, Did you ever see any of those come up at uh, Alex Rockman? <laughs> well, so I've been doing it for so long that I just literally I'm like a I'm like an overgrown 300 pound squirrel, but I can't remember where I planted them, so I yeah. have no you, clue. You know, but, my, one of my favorite. I wonder what it looks like now. Sorry. Yeah. No, it, 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 it's funny because if I see a random oak, I'm like a hot dog. There's one of them. But one of the things that I did learn from Dan, it, um, well, one of the many things I should say, is to is to plant those is to plant those acorns kind of in areas where they kind of have a, a a natural backstop. Meaning, you know, I, I meaning I don't want to plant an acorn on the downslope of a hill. Because the water's gonna rush right over there unless we have a good 20 inch soaker like what we're having right now, which hadn't happened probably in a century. Uh, so what I've been doing is I plant them at the bottom of the hill kind of per se. Is that, is that accurate there, Dan? Sure. So yeah, looking where the water goes anytime it's a rainfall event, there's those, those areas that naturally, uh, the water ends up and those stay wet a little longer. And sometimes for those little seeds, that's, that's all it takes. If an area, is going to not dry out for for a week or so, um, so it has that adequate soil moisture. Uh, you can also do some of that kind of yourself. Um, there are different earthen dams that you can you know make with a little shovel or even your shoe or, or foot, but just trying to slow down the water a little bit. Um, there are some different water harvesting earthworks that kind of they're like little eyebrows uh, where the eyebrow is on the downslope, and so. As those water drops are kind of moving, they slow um, kind of at the front part of that dam. And if you put some seeds there and it stays wet, yeah, certainly they'll germinate. You know, we actually did, God, I'm just coming back to me now. We actually did that, Daniel, with some rocks. I remember that. And you were saying exactly that, that, you know, these rocks will help slow up that water if we get a, if we get a tank filler, as we call it. And, um, 
it'll 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 help it soak in. That's that's crazy. I actually remember where we did those. And I, I don't think I've seen a tree there yet. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, only next time. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, and, and then yeah, behind those rocks, you know, the soils will will kind of deposit in the gaps of the rocks and kind of levels out that area. It, how else, uh, other than you know where to put the acorn geographically? Uh, how deep do you put it? Do you put it at a certain angle when you do that? Uh, yeah, so the, the good rule of thumb for planting any seed is to plant that seed about two to three times the diameter of the seed. So if an acorn was half an inch, if you planted that about uh, an inch and a half deep, that would be perfect. If you plant anything too deep, um, it really inside of any seed, uh, there's carbohydrates and sugars, and it's that stored energy that the plant loses, uses in order to, to put the, the main tap root down, um, and then, uh, those, uh, first, uh, leaves. Uh, and then it's not until it puts off its true leaves until it starts photosynthesizing. So, um, you wouldn't want it to use up that store of energy, you know, before it can get there to, to the top of the soil. On the other hand, if you're planting something too shallow, um, certainly some of those may germinate, but they're more easily predated, you know, by, um, now it could be wildlife birds, uh, but maybe some critters, um, you know, beavers or squirrels or, or something that you may not want them to eat. So uh, two to three times the diameter of the seed is the best rule of thumb. Okay, great. Um, you mentioned something uh, uh, a little while back about uh, people sending you pictures for identification. Uh so you're okay with if people just send you a message on your like Instagram or whatever with a picture of uh, the plant they're trying to identify? At sure. TX plant guy. Yeah. So Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, you type in TX plant guy into Google, LinkedIn. Um, it might, I'll pop up. Um, now people can send me a message if they're shy, and and I'll get back to them for sure. Uh, if you tag me in the post or or put it on my page. Um, it's a little bit more beneficial because then uh, the rest of us get to see and identify it as well. So it's more of a learning tool uh, when it's public. But, hey, I spend every day I'm identifying plants. Um, I used to be on the Texas Tech Plant ID team. I was that nerd in college. Um, <laughs> but really, that's that's one of the most fun games to play. And actually, if I can get stumped, I, I really even like that more because – that means I get to search and, and learn, and uh, certainly if I can't figure it out, then then we'll find somebody who can. All right. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. Well, uh, I think we'll probably try to wrap it up right there. Uh, is there anything else you guys want to add, Richard or Daniel, before? No, I just, uh, Dan, thank you so much for your time. You're, uh, you're a wealth of knowledge, um, and, and I sincerely hope that, that especially all the, the native Texans out there, but everybody else, uh, you know, listens to what you say and, and really latches onto your message and starts following it because, uh, it, it's, it's definitely the, the right thing to do. You know, people, I think more often than not, people go get in their, in their truck in the morning and they take off and they don't even look at their landscape. They look at their landscape when there's a problem. You know, and looking at your landscape around your house and then around your, your property and your lease and whatnot can just be, Quite frankly, I think it can be a huge stress relief, you know, and so uh, I, I think the the world has a lot to learn from you, my friend, and we appreciate your time. Well, I, I appreciate it as well. Um, I did want to just, uh, as we're wrapping up here, um, 
I, I've kind of set aside some some resources uh, that you you should be able to find with the show notes uh, that talk about uh, different programs through AgriLife in the state um, that are that are free to find more information. Uh, whether that's wildlife food plots, um, food plots for for white-tailed deer, uh, different wildflower uh, wildlife planning guides, uh, more information about habitat restoration and where to find seeds. Um, as well as some resources that help with different problems around plants that you may be uh, finding on your property. So, um, and then as always, yeah, please feel free to reach out to me at TX Plant Guy, and uh, and I'd love to help any way I can. Awesome, great, yeah, that was a <laughs> that was a lot of amazing education, if I might say so myself. Uh, I'll have to listen to this episode a couple more times to take it all in. <laughs> so I really appreciate it, Dan. But would you be uh, okay with coming back and talking to us in the future about uh, some more topics? Along oh the man, any time, I'd love to. Awesome. Uh, would you mind uh, reminding people how they can reach you again and follow you? Yeah, so um, at TX Plant Guy is my social media, and uh, then if people want to email me, my professional email is Daniel.Cunningham at T-A-M-U, like Texas A&M University, T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. So once again, that's Daniel.Cunningham at T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. Awesome, awesome. Uh very good. Well, we'll we will post uh, several links to the great articles that Daniel mentioned uh, uh, earlier than what we've discussed today. Uh, definitely on the show notes page, you can find those at uh, feedbandit.com/ten. So be sure to go and check out the additional information there. Uh, again, that'll be at feedbandit.com/ten. Uh, that's the number of the episodes so uh thanks again daniel we'd love to have you back in the future talk more about this fascinating and important topic and uh thanks everyone for listening i uh, hope you had a good time listening and learned a lot and have a good one thanks for listening to the feed bandit podcast if you want to find new and innovative hunting gear and service providers not typically offered through the traditional big box hunting stores, come on over and join the hunt at feedbandit.com join. When you join, as a bonus, you'll get our entertaining free e-guide of unique hunting tips and tricks. And a reminder to all you small businesses, feed stores, gear inventors, or entrepreneurs in the hunting space, if you'd like to get more exposure to potential customers by being featured on the FeedBandit podcast, please let us know. We'd love to discuss what we can do for you and your business. Go to FeedBandit.com promote. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please give us a rating and review on iTunes as it would really help us out. Go to FeedBandit.com iTunes. Thanks everyone for listening. Until next time. Please remember to support your local feed store.